The scripture reading this morning is Philippians 1, 9-11, which can be found on page 1161 in the Pew Bibles. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9-11. through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We've just begun our journey through the book of Philippians uh, in a series we've entitled Gospel Mission Gospel Community, looking at what does it mean, according to Paul, what's his vision for how the church, the people of God in Christ, partner together in the gospel and for the gospel. So that is what we've been looking for. And as we enter a fresh uh, season of ministry... Uh, coming out of a time of transition, one of the interesting and I think important questions to ask is uh, you know, 20, uh, 40, 80 years from now, looking back, what do we want to have marked us as a church during this time? Think about that. What will it look like to have walked faithfully with the Lord? What kind of fruit do we dream about and do we desire God to bear through us? When I was in my own um, interim transition after finishing my position uh, at College Church a few years ago, uh, before coming here, most of you know I spent some time uh, working in a warehouse uh, in the shipping department. And one of the perks of that job was that I got to listen to an iPod. And so I would listen to probably on average about four plus hours of sermons and lectures and interviews a day while I was doing my job. It was great. And as I listened to some of the men who have really shaped the evangelical church in recent generations, many of whom are kind of in their final stretch of ministry, and they would be reflecting back on their careers behind them, it really forced me to ask a question. You know, when I come down the home stretch someday... What do I want to look back and say, you know, my life has been about? What do I want people to look back and say that this is what characterized my own ministry? And I wanted to ask those questions now before I even stepped foot into this pulpit so that I knew where are we going, where am I going, and I can evaluate along the way uh, as, as we're getting there. And the Lord really laid two things on my heart. I want people to be absolutely and utterly convinced that Jesus is the greatest treasure in life. That there is nothing sweeter, nothing greater, nothing more meaningful, nothing more substantial than Jesus. That's the first thing. If people get that when I'm done with my work here on earth, I will die a very happy man. The second thing is that I want people to know and love their Bibles. I want people to know and, and love reading God's Word and obeying God's Word and delighting to learn more and more about God's Word because in that Bible, God is speaking. So to know God means to know His Word. If I can see, you know, however many years from now that God has done those two things, I will die a very happy man. So you can ask this kind of question at a personal level, what do we want to have marked our lives and ministries in the end? 
but we can also ask it at a church-wide level. We can ask it specifically. What do we want to be about 60 years from now? What, when we look back? And that's part of the visioning process that the church has been in and that we're going to be talking uh, more about uh, in uh, the near future. But we can also ask that question more generally. And I think that's what Paul is doing in our passage this morning in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. He's dealing with this question at a general level. What's the goal? What's the destination? Where are we going as a church? Not just as Westgate, but as the people of God in Christ. What's the destination and what will it take to get there? That's what Paul is praying God would make clear and that God would do in and through the congregation at Philippi that he's writing to. To bring them to the proper destination and to keep them on course in the meantime. So let's pray and then let's look more closely at God's word together. Lord, we do ask for your spirit to meet us, to guide us. We ask, Jesus, that you would give um, wisdom, that you would open our eyes to see you when we look into your word this morning, that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear you, that you would lay hold of our hearts, guide them according to your will, renew them, strengthen them, change them, even as we sit under your word together this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, is part of a larger section where Paul has, is praying for the Philippian church in their partnership in the gospel. We looked at the first part of that last week in uh, verses 3 through 8, the motivation of Paul's prayer. What is it that moved him to want to be praying and asking these things of God? And we saw... Uh, how he was moved uh, with genuine affection and thankfulness for these people because they were partnered together in the gospel. They were partnered together as a community on mission for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul was confident that God would be faithful and bear fruit in and through their lives uh, because uh, of God's faithfulness. His confidence was not in the church itself, but in the very character and promise of God. And so he was moved to pray for this community. But what does he pray? What is his actual request? Well, that's what brings us to verses 9 through 11, where Paul is going to ask God to do in and through this community whatever is necessary to bring them to a faithful finish in their walk. Notice the repetition uh, of the phrase, day of Jesus Christ, or day of Christ. You see it in verse 6. Paul's confident that he who began a good work in this community will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He has his sights set on the end. We see that same phrase come up in verse 10. Paul wants this church to be found faithful when the Lord returns, to arrive at, a pro at the proper destination. And to get there... You have to be on the right road, though. And you have to stay on that road. You have to stay on course. So Paul's prayer, as it unfolds, is for the Philippians to grow in the love and knowledge, it's kind of the guardrails, that will keep them on the right road, the main thing, that will then bring them 
to the proper destination, a faithful and fruitful finish in the day of Christ. Let's read these verses again. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and so be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul begins his prayer by asking God to make the Philippians' love abound more and more in knowledge and all insight. So think of that love and that knowledge as the guardrails on the road, a love informed by knowledge. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't specify the object of the love here. He doesn't say whether it's love for God, I want that love for God to abound, or if he's specifying you know, love for one another, which is not atypical in Scripture, because the two really go hand in hand. Love for God and love for his family uh, walk together. If you love God, you will love his people. You will love his family. 1 John 4.20 says, rather bluntly, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. So, if you love God, you're going to love his people. Uh, And you can't really love his people, you can't really love the family of God, unless you love God, because you won't know what love is, or how to give it. See, love is more than just affection for someone. It's not less than affection. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll... say in order to try and make it easier to love somebody that, well, I'll love him, but I don't have to like him. That's nonsense. Love is affection. It's warmth. You know, love involves, uh, love involves affection, but it is more than affection. And that affection might be undeserved sometimes. You know, somebody, you know, it might be a compassion and a desire to see good done for someone, even though they've really brought scorn upon themselves for their behavior. But I, I'm still for them. I still have a warmth toward them. See, love, there's a temperature to love, and it's not cold. It's warm. Love is warm. It's affectionate. At the same time, biblical love involves commitment. So just as God's love for us is loyal, it's steadfast, it's stable, So our love for one another among God's people should be committed to the good of each other and to the glory of God. There is a posture in love as well. We are for one another. Third, love is, biblical love, shows itself in sacrifice. Think of Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So love has a temperature. It's warm. Love has a posture. It's for one another. Love also has a price. Love has a price. And it's laying my life down for the sake of the other. Following the model of Christ's sacrifice. So Paul wants the Philippians, to abound more and more in love. Love for God, love for one another. He wants the fires of their hearts to burn hot toward one another. But he also wants that love to be guided and guarded by knowledge. See, I pray that your love would abound more and more, 
with knowledge and all discernment. So again, he, he leaves the object unspecified. So knowledge of what? Well, if we keep reading in Philippians, it's almost certainly knowledge of Christ. You keep going ahead, you get to uh, chapter 3, and we see Paul's greatest desire in chapter 3, verse 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's the knowledge Paul's after. He continues in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to know Christ and he wants their love to be built up, guided and guarded by a knowledge of Christ, a personal knowledge. This is a relational knowledge. So for them to know Jesus the way somebody might know their spouse, not a book. It's that kind of knowledge. Uh, and both love and knowledge are necessary here. One of my friends and mentors used, likes to use the picture of a, of a fire in a fireplace. You know, love is a fire. And it burns and gives heat. And that's a good thing. But fires can also consume and destroy if they are enabled to get out of hand. And so love without knowledge is like a fire without a fireplace. It lacks the boundaries and direction to do what it's supposed to do. And instead can give way to a reckless zeal and passion that can lead a church in all sorts of harmful directions. So we want love. We want our hearts to burn hot with love but we need the fireplace of knowledge to contain it and guide it. But at the same time, a fireplace without a fire is like knowledge without love. What's it good for? It's just kind of a cold ornament to be proud of. Look at our knowledge. Isn't it wonderful? It's not doing anything. It's not doing what fireplaces are supposed to do. So you need both love and knowledge, both the fire and the fireplace as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We need to have both. Love gives heat, knowledge gives direction. And together, this informed love that Paul prays for them to grow in is what keeps the Philippians on course. It's what enables them to, verse 10, approve what is excellent or discern what is best. To stay on course. Now, what's Paul talking about when he says, you know, I want them to be able to discern what is best in verse 10? The word he's using here, or the words, suggest that what he, what he wants them to do is to be able to tell the difference between secondary matters and primary ones. Okay? So, between good things and the main thing. That's what Paul wants their informed love to help them be able to do, to make that kind of distinction. As one commentator puts it, Paul's concern here is not the choice between what is good and what is bad, but between what is good and what is best. That's the distinction he wants them to be able to make. What's the main thing? And only one thing can be the main thing. Only one thing can be best or most excellent in the Philippians' gospel partnership. 
Only one thing can stand as the central navigation point that tells you whether or not you're on course, that gives shape and direction and significance to everything else they do. So what is that main thing? It has to be the gospel itself. It has to be the good news of Jesus. That's the one thing that Paul was willing to lose everything else for in chapter 3, to know Christ. The gospel stands at the center of Paul's vision for the church. Everything flows out from it and points back to it, to the good news of what God has done to rescue us, to change us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And again, the word gospel simply means good news, but it refers to something. It's a good news about something. It refers to the whole plan of God to redeem and restore what's broken and sinful in this world, not least our own lives and relationships. So Paul wants us to see the centrality of the gospel for all of life. As another author comments on the prayer here, he says, it takes only a moment's reflection to see that all these petitions are gospel-centered. These are gospel prayers. That is, they are prayers offered to advance the work of the gospel in the lives of the Philippian believers. Paul wants their love and their knowledge to grow in order to keep them fixed on the gospel of Jesus, the most excellent thing. We must continually remind ourselves that the gospel is not just for non-Christians. Now, some of us here this morning may not be Christians. Some of us might not be sure quite what that even means. Perhaps you've not recognized uh, the ugliness of your own sin, uh, just as everyone in here has you know, an ugly uh, pattern of rebellion in our hearts, a desire to see God displaced from his throne so that I can run life the way I want to run it. Maybe that hasn't dawned on some of us, the depth and how ugly and offensive that is to God. And so, therefore, we don't understand the extent to which God has gone in showing us his love, what it cost him to take sinners who deserve punishment and instead to rescue them and to reconcile them to himself through what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Perhaps there are some who don't quite get what that means or how that changes things and have not yet placed their faith personally in that good news, that gospel message of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you need to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel, to put the full weight of your hope and life in Jesus. So the gospel is for you. But if you are a Christian, the gospel's for you too. You still need the gospel. As long as we will wrestle with sin, as long as we will be sinned against, as long as our hearts will be tempted to give our deepest affection and allegiance to things other than God, we remain in need of God's grace, his forgiveness, his peace, and that's only available through the gospel. We don't start by grace and carry on by works or by performing for God. Everything about life in Christ 
comes from and points back to the gospel. Jesus must be our central navigation point. Or to switch the image. So if love and knowledge are the guardrails, like we mentioned a minute ago, then the gospel's the road. Okay? It is the path that we must walk for the whole of life. It's not just the on-ramp. It's how we sometimes treat it. We use the gospel to get onto the road, and then the road's something else. No, the gospel's the road. In fact, it's the only road that will carry us to the kind of faithful and fruitful end that Paul envisions for us, that God calls us to. Nothing but the gospel of Jesus and his spirit is able to guide us and carry us to where God wants us to be. Now, there are a million other things that threaten this one main thing. And as a church, we are always going to be tempted to put something other than the gospel at the center of our community and our mission. And a lot of them are good things. They're good things. Things like family, or small groups, or music, or preaching, or missions, or youth group, or food pantry, or liturgy, or choir, or children's ministry, or outreach, and so on. There's all sorts of wonderful, good things. But none of them are the main thing. None of those things are able to give shape and direction and significance to everything that we do. None of them are able to empower everything that we do. And therefore, none of them should stand at the center. And when we take a secondary thing, even if it's a good thing, and make it a primary thing, we actually distract ourselves from the mission and feed a fragmentation in our community. Think about what happens if I put something like family at the center of our community and our mission. So we decide we want Westgate to be a safe place for families. We want to, all of our ministries to help equip families or to provide a platform for families to serve together. That's what we're going to be about. I mean, yeah, we'll have other ministries, but the ones we're really excited about are the ones that build up families, strong marriages, you know, kids who believe in Jesus and who want to walk with him, well-behaved children. That's what we're going to be about. And 30 or 40 years from now, if people can look back and say, wow, Westgate, that's a place where they knew how to do family, we'll be tickled pink. So consider that. Now, our family's a good thing. Yes, yes, families are a very good thing. Okay? Is investing in and building up families a good thing? It's a very good thing, a necessary thing. Is it the main thing? What about single people? What about the woman who's longed for a husband for decades, only to have her heart broken at every prospect? What about the childless? What about the family that used to be, but then the child died of cancer or a car accident? What about, what about the husband and wife who've longed to hold in their arms a child of their very own, and for some reason God's never answered that prayer? What about families that have been fractured by adultery or divorce? 
If we're all about families, where do, where do they fit in? Do they all of a sudden become second-class citizens of church? Is that? What about children whose parents aren't interested in church? What about marriages that are divided over the things of faith? An unbelieving spouse. What about children who wander from the faith? Does that mean their, their parents just didn't get it? They didn't pray hard enough or do enough with their kids, and so therefore they've failed the ideal? What about the teenager who gets pregnant? Is there any room for them in a family-centered church? Families are a good thing. They cannot be the main thing. They cannot. Neither can music, neither can any number of good things. Rather, what's the one thing that can speak into every family situation, broken or unbroken? What's the one thing that can minister to the heart of the childless, or the widow, or the orphan, or the family bursting at the seams? What's the one thing? Only the gospel of Jesus. Only the gospel of Jesus can speak to people all across the board. The gospel's for the pregnant teenager just as much as it's for the happily wed couple. And this is true of every other good but secondary thing that we can come up with. Music, youth, youth group, choir, children's ministries. What's the one thing that can unite our hearts, unify our passions, give shape and direction and significance to all that we do? Only the gospel of Jesus. One of the reasons that most churches don't experience the kind of warm and affectionate community that we saw on display last week in the motivation for Paul's prayer, that beautiful uh, thankfulness and gratitude and affection he had for them. One of the reasons that so few churches know what that feels like is because they don't share a common cause. They don't have one main thing that binds them all together. They chase after a bunch of little things in all sorts of directions, and they become fragmented and ineffective in ministry and community. But if we're growing in our love for one another, for the whole body, and if that love is informed by our knowledge of Jesus then that's only going to point us in one direction, and that's back to the gospel consistently. Not the gospel of family, not the gospel of music or small groups or a certain style of preaching. Only the gospel of Jesus is able to bind us together as a community on mission and give shape, direction, significance, and power to everything that we do. Nothing but the gospel of Jesus and his spirit is able to guide and carry us to where God wants us to be. And carry us home, it will. Look at the fruit of a gospel-centered vision for life beginning in the middle of verse 10. Paul 
prays for them ultimately so that they may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul describes this faithful finish in several ways. First, he wants them to be found pure and blameless. Now, in other words, Paul is praying that the transforming power of the gospel will have had its effect on them. That, or as one author clarifies, this is this pure and blamelessness. This is not the result of a self-improvement program, but the good work of God. And go back to verse 6. Where was Paul's confidence? That God would be faithful to finish what he started. He wasn't waiting or trusting in the Philippians to get their act together and manufacture a bunch of good works out of their own effort, but in God to do the work. When Paul tells the Philippians later in chapter 2, verse 12, to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he follows it by saying, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. Paul wants us to finish faithfully. He wants us to be able to look back at the end of our journey, and say, God bore much fruit through us and through the gospel. He wants us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. So he prays for genuine change. But it's the gospel that brings the change. The fruit of right living. This is, this is not about being saved by works. You know, I want you to have good works so that when you get to the end, God will save you because of that. No, salvation is by grace through faith. This is about the fact that the gospel doesn't leave us the way it finds us. Rather, God changes our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit to live differently than we lived when we were still rebels against God and His will. Paul expects real change. But it comes, verse 11, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Everything flows out from the gospel and points us back to it. The glory and praise of God. That means God both supplies the strength for right living and gets the credit for our right living. He gets the glory. The ultimate goal of a faithful finish is not to make much of ourselves you know, you think of you know, the first person to cross the line in the Boston Marathon and the glory they received. That's not the point. It's to make much of God. It's to say, look what God did with a dirty, broken, weak, sinful person and, and community. Look what God did. Only God is worthy of that kind of praise. He gets the glory. Only one thing can be the main thing for a community living on mission each day. Only the gospel can stand at the center. The center of our lives and following Paul's lead here at the center of our prayers. Another commentator writes, put the gospel first and that means you must put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. See, Paul's praying gospel-shaped prayers for this community. The call of this passage is not merely to live this way, guarded and guided by an informed love 
and centered on the gospel for all of life and confident in God's faithfulness to bring us to a joyful end, but also to pray for each other along these lines. This ought to consume our prayer life when we go before the throne of God on behalf of one another. And so, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate this gospel through the Lord's Supper, I want us to close by joining our hearts in this kind of prayer. So please pray with me. Lord, how sweet and patient and compassionate you are to watch us try to put so many other things in place of your gospel. They're good things, Lord. They're things that flow out of your gospel, but they're not your gospel. Give us eyes. Give us a love that genuinely grows and burns for one another, for the good of the other and the glory of God. And shape that love here at Westgate by a knowledge of Christ. Let our own experience and and personal relationship with Jesus shape the way we think about and pray for and love each each other so that we can point each other to the gospel, to depend on it for our marriages, for our families, for our jobs, for our relationships with our neighbors, for the, the painful things in life that we wouldn't wish on anybody. May the gospel minister and shape in those things, Lord. May we keep our hearts and our minds fixed on and more excited about Jesus than anything else. That we might be found faithful in the end. That your spirit might do its transforming work through the message of Jesus.